But um, yeah, just a quick note about the note sheet. I wanted to provide a lot of stuff and then give you short things to fill in periodically just to keep us going. Um, depending on how we're doing on time, um, we may slow down here or there to read through some of the texts that are mentioned um, to demonstrate some of the stuff that we'll talk about. But if not, I may read or I may skip them just based on time. But uh, so this week, we're going to broaden our scope a bit. Uh, the previous uh, week, you're dealing mainly from like the word level and sentence level. And today, uh, we'll be looking at two broader portions. Uh, first, paragraph level of Scripture. And then even broader than that, what uh, we're terming the discourse level. Um, so, how do we look for things uh, on the paragraph level will be pretty similar to that for the individual level. So, the first thing to look for is we'll have general and specific statements. So, a good demonstration of that would be like uh, Galatians 5, 16, um, there, where we have Paul discussing a life in the Spirit, where he says, first, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, desires of the Spirit against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Right? All that's pretty broad, broad descriptions. Then uh, he flips halfway through um, verse 19 to give you some clear specifics on what that looks like. So he continues on and says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. He says, you know, if you're being led by the flesh, this is what that looks like. So he describes something generally and then gives you a bunch of examples. Um, if you wanted to be uh, just simpler about it, the concept is like, I like ice cream. And be like, I specifically like vanilla, ch chocolate, um, mint, whatever. Uh, insert whatever you want there. Um, a lot of the stuff, uh, we'll see a number of these in Romans as well, because uh, when we're describing stuff. So um, Romans 12.1, actually the beginning of that chapter, is where we have the, the general information where he states, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, uh, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that's pretty vague, though there's some indications to what that means. Um, but he gives some more uh, clear uh, indications of it later in that chapter, down in verse 9 through 13, and that's why I've included it here. So um, he begins there with uh, let, let love be genuine. So that's a, a general. Um, and then he goes, our, I mean, uh, specific, let love be genuine, arbor, uh, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. These are love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. These are specific ways in which we can present our bodies as living sacrifices because of the mercy of God. Um, the second uh, thing to look for in paragraphs will be questions and answers. Now, I'm not going to read all of those in Romans. Multiple of these have been already covered uh, on Sunday mornings, one of which was mentioned this past Sunday. 
where we have the first um, uh, kind of answer to the thing. Um, and in the future, we'll have many more. Um, but also in Mark 2, like if we were just going to take a, a census of that, um, if somebody's willing to read that, just Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6, it's a, a bit of a chunk. Um, actually, no, I want to do this. I'll just skim over this and just read all the questions for you, right? So through that section there, we have Jesus uh, coming back to Capernaum and having a, a back and forth with some of the Pharisees. And this is how many questions exist in that passage alone. So we have, um, where did it go? Why did I make this so small? Liars. It says, uh, so he forgives the lame man and the scribes sitting there questioning in their hearts. Um, what is this, uh, why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus perceives this in them and he asks them more questions. Why do you question these things in your heart? Um, he continues, which is easier to say the, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, uh, rise, take up your bed and walk. But you may know that the Son of Man on authority has earth, I mean, on the, oh, I can't speak, on earth has the authority to forgive sins. Um, he continues on, uh, going down to, um, they see him with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Um, and he says to them, uh, I'm here for the sick, not for the healthy. And they continue, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And he answers them with a question, can the wedding guests fast with the bridegroom uh, uh, while the bridegroom is with them? So over and over again, we have basically this conversation taking place where uh, most of the time a question is raised and then answered with another question. And each of these instances reveal things about the worldview of the Pharisees and the nature of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the way in which he, he asks them the words he's using. Um, but overall, this is um, an exploration of his authority as the Messiah through uh, a rhetorical device, basically a big long section of questions. Um, and that brings us to um, the third thing there, which is I feel is a bit broad, uh, broader, which is dialogue. So this probably seems more evident to us. That's just people engaging with one another, back and forth, words being spoken. But the most important thing that we can do when we come across a dialogue are ask a couple questions of the dialogue. And so I've listed them all here. So who are the participants? Um, and who is speaking to whom? Uh, what is the setting? Um, if we just use the, the Mark text a little bit, we have uh, most of the time the Pharisees speaking to Jesus straight away after him having done a miracle. They want to question him, um, and he'll turn it around on them, and then it seems a, a, a scene shift is afoot um, when we're looking into that. Um, continuing on, uh, let's think about this in terms of that passage with Mark. Are there other people around other than the people speaking? Um, are they listening to this conversation? Are they even participating in the dialogue? These are questions we should ask of the text to see what's there, to see if we could be uh, missing something. Um, also, what is the um, form of the dialogue? Um, is it an argument? Um, are we arguing over something, or is someone presenting a case for something? Um, are they simply discussing a topic 
Um, is it a lecture? I would say we could put like the Sermon on the Mount, maybe, in the lecture format in some instances, where he's having long, uninterrupted discussions on certain topics. Um, or are they just sitting around kind of chatting maybe about inconsequential things? Um, these are things that we can uh, take to a text of dialogue and see what it will produce for us. So just uh, some further examples about how if we ask these questions of the dialogue can help us. Um, we could look at the woman of the, at the well in John 4, just one of the most famous conversations Jesus had. We learned a lot about her, about uh, Jesus, about his personability, about his authority uh, to judge the hearts of men, and also to provide grace to them, just spitballing there. Um, uh, washing of Peter's feet, uh, Peter protests, um, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And he uses this as an opportunity then to teach him something about the kingdom of God and about the nature of salvation. If I don't wash your feet, then you can't enter. Um, I've put Habakkuk in there just as one because um, a neat feature of Habakkuk, and I think one of the keys to understanding the book, is that it is in itself a giant dialogue between the prophet and God. And the first half of it primarily is uh, Habakkuk uh, pleading, asking God why it is that they're suffering the way that they are. And the, the latter half is God's response to that, where he's like, I'm going to bring um, invading armies in to conquer Judah. And Habakkuk doesn't like that, and God basically says, tough. Um, but if we think about it in those terms, it's a bit easier to grasp the entire message of the book because, in, in essence, it is a long dialogue section. Um, the, um, pardon me. All right, moving swiftly. Um, actually, let me hold there before we get to four. Are there any questions right now? Any thoughts springing up about stuff? What I want to move well enough. Though. What is, um, Knowing, like, the participants and knowing who's participating in the dialogue, like, or, like, are there other people listening? What does that help us do? Well, okay, okay that's a good, that's a good uh, question. So let's take, like, Jesus and, like, Zacchaeus, right? Um, do you think their conversation would have gone differently if they weren't alone? If they were alone? Yeah, if, if they were alone. Uh, no, I, I think they are alone, right? Um, when he comes to dinner. Well, he might not be, but I don't remember if they indicated much. Neither, regardless, the conversation is going to go differently if they're in his house versus if they're in the public square. And uh, oftentimes, Jesus being as eloquent as he is and smart about it, he's probably going to say things differently if he has more than one thing in mind. Um, is that so we can show that this is for more than one person? It's not for just the person he's speaking to, but for the general audience? Or It can be, especially um, when there's times where the scriptures stated explicitly where it'd be like, they did not understand this at first. I see this quite a bit in John, where uh, they were like, they didn't understand his words, but later they believed. Um, it'll be a situation like that. Um, yeah, so when we have people around, let's say if he's uh, arguing with the, the Sanhedrin or uh, just the, the Pharisees, oftentimes they're in public places. And there are 
sometimes just Jews, sometimes Jews and Gentiles, they are witnessing this and hearing it. And he will say things um, directed directly at the Jews sometimes and then directly at the Gentiles. And that's informing what he's, um, that situation has informed what he's going to say. Uh, yeah. All the time is important, but yeah. If the text uh, gives you any room um, and justify uh, justification to say that it is important, then it is. Um, if not, then just tread lightly, I guess. Um, don't want to be too um, imaginative if it obscures the text in some way after the fact. Um, let's see here. Yeah, any more questions like that are related to this stuff? All right. Uh, number four, we have purpose slash result statements. So these are phrases or sentences that describe um, the reason, result, or consequence of some action. Um, and... Routinely, they have uh, they are introduced by conjunctions like the word that, or like in order that, so that. Um, like, what's maybe the most famous Bible verse ever? Maybe. John three sixteen. Okay, and what does it say? <clears throat> yeah, it's on your sheet because I want to break it down. But yeah, it's for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So we have the reason, God loving the world. And the consequence is that he gave his only son. Um, that's pretty easy to, to see. And the scripture's fairly good at cueing us into that is the, the order of things happening in there. Um, but uh, quickly, number five, uh, we have the means by which something is accomplished. So when we have an action, a result, or a purpose um, that's stated, uh, we look for the means that brings about that action, uh, brings about the result, or brings about the purpose. So um, we're asking ourselves just those, those base questions. How is the action or result brought into reality? How does it come to fruition? Um, and how is the purpose that's intended accomplished um, if we jump back to a text we looked at before uh, with Romans 8, um, 13. Uh, can somebody find that real quick for me and just read Romans 8, 13? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit... In you, put, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Yeah. So in that verse right there, we want to put to death the deeds of the body. And the means by which we do that is the Spirit. So it would be the means um, uh, by which the misdeeds of the body are put to death is the Spirit. So that is the, the thing that produces that uh, purpose. Um, how about uh, Psalm 119.9? Does anybody have that? Be nice and brief. 
How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to thy word? Yeah, exactly. So in, in that verse, the purpose or action that we're looking for is a young person staying on the path of purity. And the means is very clearly stated as living according to God's word. Um, that's a really like high, high quality uh, depiction of that. Um, uh, the sixth factor that we can look into uh, in paragraphs are uh, conditional clauses. Um, so if we describe the concept in words, I feel like it's really clunky, but I'm going to do it at first and then give us the, the short version. It's like these are clauses um, that uh, present the condition whereby some action or consequence or reality or result will happen. Um, so we'll have the conditional aspect introduced uh, normally by a conjunction like if, and then we'll have the resultant action or consequence that's introduced by then. So this is just if then. If this, then that. Um, and we see these throughout a number of places, but uh, a, a clear example will be First John 1, 6. Um, could somebody read that out for me? First John 1, 6. We claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not live out the truth. Yeah. So if I insert with my editorial powers the word then, it would read, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, then we lie and do not live out the truth. So the condition that's set up there is claiming to have fellowship while walking in darkness, and the result or consequence is... Um, we are lying, and we do not live out the truth. Um, number seven is a pretty important one, and maybe in simpler terms, one that you've dealt with before. Um, the, the term from the text that we're using uh, uses this longer version uh, that says the action-slash-roles of people and the actions-slash-roles of God. So the question to ask is, um, like, what does God, whether it be Father, Son, or Spirit, um, do in this passage? Uh, what do people do in this passage? And thirdly, are there any connections between what God does and what we do in this passage? Um, if somebody could get me Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. I'll, I'll demonstrate this a little bit just with one example here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Very good. So does anybody want to hazard a guess as to what our role is in those two verses? Imitate, yeah. Imitate God. Correct. So um, is it one person of the Godhead that we're imitating, or is it more than one? Anyone? From that text. It's more than one. It's the imitators. More than one. Yeah. It's, um, we have mention of both the Father and the Son that we're supposed to imitate. 
So we imitate God the Father as a child imitates, and we are to live a life of love like the Son did. And so, consequently, God's role um, as Father and Son are to be imitated, and also um, the role of the Son in that passage was to be offered up. He offered up himself to the Father for us. So just by asking the, those three questions, um, we've gained a little bit of nuance on the way in which we can imitate God if we were only given that passage, um, as well as how much, the, how much God is doing for us, for us to have right relationship. Um, and that could be a good transition then to probably a lot of people's favorite parts of Scripture are, would be emotional terms. So that's number eight. So primarily, uh, the Bible is a book about relationships, um, and that primary relationship is about um, God and us, between God and his people. Um, Let's uh, look at two different passages, Um, the two listed there. If somebody can grab me, um, Galatians 4, 12 through 16, and read it out. Brothers, I entreat you, come as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of drama in that. We, in this situation, based on the way in which Paul is describing his former relationship with the Galatians, it was definitely one of warmth, of welcome, of brotherhood. He, he, treats, uh, he pleads with them um, as brothers and sisters. Um, and they have this schism here where they're not taking kindly to him now that they have uh, stepped into error, and he has to correct them. Um, I'll read this one, uh, Jeremiah 3, 9 through 20. Um, listen for the words that conjure up uh, emotion here, right? So, Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt and then you, uh, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you from one city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Um, I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant, uh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called to the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart, 
In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave you, you gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So two really emotionally laden um, metaphors are applied to Israel there. There's father and son, Israel being the son, with God their father, and the husband and wife relationship, where you have adulterous Israel committing uh, adultery with foreign gods. And God uses both of these, one, to show them how emotionally hurt he is by their actions, but also um, his potential for mercy and compassion, for reconciliation in those two most fundamental relationships, parent-child and husband and wife. Um, Similar to, like, emotional terms, uh, they will definitely affect the tone of a passage. So number nine, um, we're looking a bit to tone. So let's uh, compare and contrast really briefly. If someone would read Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and then someone else immediately read Galatians 3, 1 through 4. Then you have been raised with Christ. Keep the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is out our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, somebody, Galatians 3, 1 through 4. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit and now going to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? All right, what are some of the, the primary differences here in Paul's use of language. What do you see or what do you hear when just comparing these two? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, he, he scolds them multiple times. Um, calls them foolish, saying they're, uh, they have been bewitched by something. Uh, they continue into uh, further foolishness and maybe that all of their efforts have been in, in vain up until this point. Um, whereas in Colossians 3, his purpose is very different. He's um, explaining um, some doc- doctrinal realities here, um, something to hold on to, to gain hope from. And in that text, then, he uses a very calm, more explanatory uh, tone. So we have Paul writing to different audiences for two different things, using different tones, to help convey what he intends to convey. Um, those are things that need to be needed, uh, I mean, need to be considered when we're looking into the broader context to better understand how the original audience would have um, experienced that. 
Okay, before we move on to the next section, do we have any questions or thoughts um, again? All right, I will assume not. Okay, now we're going to broaden it just a bit more from the paragraph level to the discourse level. So just a, a working definition from the text there. Um, discourse refers to units of connected text that are longer than paragraphs. Um, all right, so the first thing that we can look for um, in discourses are connections between um, paragraphs and episodes. Um, the reason I put Mark um, 8 in there is um, something that's very interesting is pointed out in the text and the uh, I might talk about it just a smidge. Um, that is the story of Jesus healing a blind man. Uh, he heals him uh, not fully right away, and, and then he restores his, his whole sight. And once he has done so, he sends him home, but he tells him not to go to the village. And in isolation, that just sounds like a brief instance of Jesus healing a guy and for his own reasons, telling him to, to keep silent about it. But what's most interesting is if we broaden this, this is sandwiched by two uh, other passages where Jesus is dealing with his disciples, where he first chides them for not seeing, meaning understanding. And it's followed by uh, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And so to gain a bit more um, understanding of this larger section, if we look for um, repeated words, repeated themes here, we can see um, in vignette a brief arc of the disciples not completely understanding who Jesus is and his words, Jesus performing a miracle, giving a man physical sight, and then an account of the disciples beginning to understand more and seeing very clearly who Jesus actually is. Um, something that can actually provide meaningful context to uh, the usage of this, Mark using this here, um, over against it being a coincidental side quest, if you're into video game terms, which I doubt many of you are, um, into Jesus getting some XP points and healing a guy. Um, I found that incredibly intriguing. Um, one I stumbled upon in my own study at the beginning of, uh, man, was it last year now? I'm trying to remember. When did we quit? Regular, yeah, it was the beginning of last year. I uh, started teaching through John. Was uh, There's a, a number of times where we have Jesus um, encountering the Pharisees at different places and speaking to them about certain things. 
And uh, it's always revealed that there's an audience to these encounters. And they always mention that there are people around watching and that there are some of the disciples around watching. And what I discovered was in all of those instances, uh, the peoples that were gathered and the Pharisees were asking for and demanding sign miracles from Jesus to know if he, what he was saying was authoritative. And John makes a very careful note to always mention that the disciples, in contrast to these people, believed his words. They believed what he said. Um, they weren't placing their faith at the time on something that they could see. They were actually trusting him. And I always found that incredibly interesting, that I would not have done that. I would not have noticed that connection between the stories um, from John 1 to John 3 if I wasn't studying them back to back and trying to understand how they fit into the narrative of, of the early chapters of John. Um, so that's one I stumbled upon in my own life. It's over again. Jesus is the revealed word of God. Um, he is the creator of all things and that he has authority in matters of salvation. And we have two groups responding to him in different ways, those believing his words unto faith and then those who he would later call a wicked generation who are looking for a sign. Um, let's see. Oh, lost my notes here. Uh, the second uh, thing we can look for in discourses are... Um, Story shifts, and they describe them as major breaks and pivots. So I included those two there just from Ephesians, um, where similar to Romans, as Jason has noted, we have doctrinal explanation from Paul for multiple chapters, followed by practical living application for multiple chapters. So... There's a, though consistent in uh, material and implication, a, a sharp turn from um, this is true, this is true, this is true, to do this because of that, do this because of that, do this because of that. Um, that happens uh, in a number of the epistles because of their structure. Um, thirdly, we can look for interchange. So that's a, a literary device that they use primarily um, in narratives um, that will involve contrasting or comparing two stories at the same time as a part of the overall story. So I've included a convoluted-looking little thing there. But in many ways, the book of Acts functions as an interchange where we have multiple chapters at the beginning of... Um, the apostolic church being established where our central focal point is on Peter and his ministry. And we have a few interludes back and forth throughout the middle between him and Saul, later to become Paul. And eventually, uh, towards the latter portion of the book, the majority of the end, is primarily Paul as the central figure of Acts. Now, why might Luke tell the story in this way in establishing the church? Um, I say, this is uh, the text's take as well as mine, is that he is propping up Paul as on par in apostolic authority as Peter. 
Um, we even see this later when uh, Peter explicitly mentions Paul being an apostle and bets him and says that you should listen to him because what he says is from the Lord. But if we look at it on a broad scale, the book of Acts is not only um, the story of how the church age began with the coming of the Spirit, but it's also an establishment of the apostolic office of Paul uh, on par with Peter, um, of whom Jesus said uh, he would build his church upon the rock of his confession. Um, all right, we're moving along pretty good. Uh, number four, which we'll come around to um, this for an activity if we have time, is chiism. Uh, chi- I'm trying to remember how to say it again. Uh, chiism. I can't. I haven't heard it said in years now. Um, the point is, it's a literary feature that is very common in the Old Testament and Hebrew literature where they will list items or ideas or events and they'll structure them so that the first idea or, or phrase or event will parallel the last and the second will parallel the second to last and so on and so forth, working their way towards the middle. And through that, they will also communicate something. So um, they can be either very simple or exceedingly complex at times. So so I would just read briefly Psalm What are the patterns in that? Anybody? You see there. All right, I'll give it to you. God is renowned as well as his name is great. In Judah, in Israel. If we put it in a form, uh, it would be A, God is renowned, B, in Judah, B, in Israel, A, his name is great. So they can be that simple and proclaim the same truth that God is both sovereign and king over both nations of Israel, um, not just the one or the other. Um, we'll come back to Genesis 11, 1, 9 in a bit, because it's, it's tough and longer, but I want to try to get some tactile stuff on the page there. So uh, lastly, number five that we'll cover is inclusio. The literary structure in which a passage has the same or a similar word, statement, event, or theme at the beginning and at the end. Um, One of the most famous uh, texts for this is Psalm 8. If somebody would uh, find Psalm 8, read it through for us. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies, 
them that you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heaven, heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you're like me, you're probably hearing Michael W. Smith in your head. Um, but I really like the structure personally, if I'll share some comments, because it's, I think it's easier for us who have had to write essays in American English uh, to understand what's happening in the form. So sometimes they call it their bracketing, where they have a bracket on the top and the bottom of the same thing, and they have things in the middle. Um, I like to view it as there's a thesis statement that is made. There is context then given to that statement, and once the, con the fuller context and uh, nuance is given, it is then restated. So by the time we get down to, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, we will think uh, differently about it the second time we hear it after hearing what's res the rest. So if we walk through it real fast, it would be, Yahweh, our sovereign, the covenant-keeping God who is the king of all things. His name is majestic in all the earth. Why is that? Because he has glory in the heavens. Um, he, through the mouths of babes, he establishes strongholds against his enemies. So, uh, grace to the proud. Uh, I mean, resist the proud, grace to the humble kind of idea. Strength of the, of the, the earth is nothing like his. Uh, if you consider all of his craft, all the great things that he is, has created, why is it that he's mindful of such lowly creatures as us, yet he has placed us above those things? Um, we come down, to, he's made us lower than the angels, so above everything else, those wonderful works he's created. Um, he made us rulers over those works that he, he has created, both in the earth, in the sky, in the sea. Um, how majestic is his name that he does such puzzlingly great things. Um, uh, th that adds a bit more context to the repetition there, and it's definitely not a mindless repetition of the, the statement, even when it's the exact same words. Um, so that brings us back to Genesis 11, 1, 9. I wanted to try to throw this in here for us. So on your sheet there, I have you. I have them split out. Um, I have one that is one that was suggested by the book. I altered it quite a bit, but to some scholars, this is a is a chiasm. Yeah, C H I A S M, right? Um, so it exists in the form where we have corresponding ideas building towards the middle. Um, so where they kind of thematically rhyme. So take about uh, seven minutes. Write any connections that you see and try to connect them. And I want to discuss them a little bit and then offer mine as well and see if we can open up this story a little bit to us by evaluating its form. All right, who's, who's brave enough to pull out some connections here. Uh, any thoughts on it? 
do the first one because it's easier, I think, okay. <laughs> maybe, hopefully. So, first one, they have one language. First nine, they have many languages. Is that yes. what you're looking for? Yes. Okay. So that's one of them. Sweet. You want any more or pass yeah, them on? Yeah, I'm going to pass. Right. What's another one from someone? I have whole people. earth. Whole earth? It's in one, four, eight, okay. and twice in nine. Another someone? Yeah. They started building. You said started building? They were building you know, the bricks and everything and they and then and um, they're building city and tower and when built it up. And the Lord the Lord saw the tower. He said they were one people and they have a one language and it's all the beginning. So he when he mixed up the language that separated them. He sent them all over. He, he scattered them. Yeah. He said the language is scattered them so they could not do what they were doing together. Yeah. I have that one as well. Related to that. Yeah. Um, I have uh, in verse 2 uh, where the people are from and then after the whole incident God putting them where they should yeah. be going. Um, so it's there's that and I also have with the sayings, like they said, God said, um, they said, God said, and so verse three, what they said, come let us make bricks, kind of parallels what God says, um, where they're planning in verse four, verse seven, uh, parallels where then they're just confused, and then after the incident, um, they're not able to do anything anymore, and then I parallel verse, Four and verse six. Um, well, yeah, I was uh, I neglected to include six because it made my diagram look nicer. Um, if I was doing it all the way, I would include those because we have another one people, one language. But since it's already thematically hit, I was like, eh, I'll just keep it at the first time it comes up. But yeah, so. What I have in mind is, uh, if I do the broad ones, I have 11 total with one linchpin in the middle where we have the whole earth and then all the, all the earth. And then one language, the Lord confused their languages. Uh, Shinar and settled versus the Lord dispersed them. Um, come, let us make bricks uh, versus come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So God coming down the initial action of coming to do the thing. Um, then come, let us build a city and a tower. And then God, come to see the city and tower, which the children of men have built. And the middle section there that is the pivot for me is, and the Lord came down. So we have that whole section here, um, whole earth, one language. They're from a certain place and settled, and they've, pressed upon themselves to do let's make a thing and try to ascend to God's level and uh, this is a side note not a part of it but I always remembered it because one preacher said it he was like the condescension not just in terms of it being a condescension but also in tone it's like and the Lord came down to their feeble uh, attempt uh, <laughs> to say let's let's see this great city and tower uh, I always have that in my mind now um where they're like, let's build up to this, and even still, the Lord had to come down. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so if we look at that without considering those things, it might just seem kind of like a clunky story. Um, but if we look at the, th uh, the thematic implications of this, we have man um, thinking uh, in his arrogance that he can attain heaven in some way, and then God responding to that and revealing how they cannot and punishing them for it. Um, and uh, it kind of opens it up a bit more, from, especially from... Uh, I'll just be honest, some of the passages in English, they just feel real, very clunky to read. Uh, this one is to me, it's like short sentences, um, the repetition of phrases, um, and all of this. But if I think about it in this way, and what I did in my form to make myself see it more, is I also color-coded them with the rainbow colors. So I go like Roy G. Biv towards the middle, and I can really see um, this context of we're starting here and we're ending here and we're moving thematically towards this and this middle center is the the the, the climax or the the turning point really I think of it as chiasm. I don't know which, how to pronounce it at this point. It's probably key because of I, I can't remember if it's Greek or not So because that would be CH is okay but do that in this, the whole, the back half has to be flipped from the front half via the intersection point. You mean like if you were to put them right next to each other? Yeah, so yeah. one language, many languages. You can't have one language, one language if it's on the front end and the back end. Like yeah. the it front end, one language, back end has to be many languages. It would, yeah, uh, it would be nonsensical most likely. Um, it doesn't have to be because in your other example, in Judah, in Israel, the well, center Judah of Israel, God is known, his name is great. Yeah, Judah, Israel, so. yeah. They're the northern, same. Northern yeah, it's northern and southern. God's chosen people. Yeah. It's not yeah. opposite. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember if it, ha like, but if the whole thing could still parallel, you know, if some yeah. contrast, it, then I think they it, all it wouldn't. It wouldn't be, they use it, a musical term, it wouldn't be a unison. Yeah. Um, if, if it was like, the exact same thing with no other implication. Correct. Now, it could be the exact same word. Correct. Like you could have a, one of these that says, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is our name in all the earth, and it repeat again at the end. Um, but it's unlikely to, to occur. Um, right. And the way that I think of this tool is when you identify the structure, typically I don't find it well. Most of the time somebody else finds it. But the way I think of it is same. on that middle, is where it all flips. So I would state yeah. the idea of this text that when God God intervenes and flips the affairs of me. Exactly, yeah. That's why it's helpful because if we look at this, we'd just be like, well, this seems to just be events happening and then God comes down and does some stuff over against God is teaching us. We have this separate section of man's efforts um, versus God's summation of those efforts and the consequences of it, um, it could be pretty helpful that way. Um, yeah, so that one's fun. Um, any questions uh, right now towards the end? Any comments or thoughts? Again, clarification. Wanted to cover a lot and get to this, but also didn't want to just like fire hose this.
Yeah. That's why I wanted to provide a lot of it so that you could just keep it and refer back. Because I don't expect you to be like, all right, what was the last bit on page one? Um, but you could go back and see, all right, what was that thing you said about this and it's this passage? Let me look up, see if I can see that um, in there. All right, nothing from anybody. Have I left you speechless with my charisma and wisdom? You know what, in Genesis, when um, uh, Joseph is interpreting the dreams, and you'll see it, like, it's like four different times the dream is repeated, like, and this is the dream he had, and then they told the dream to so-and-so, and so it's like, is that an example of what literary tool here? Um, I'd have to review it again, but... It's like not even really important, I think. Like, the dream's really like, well, unless they're all just, you know. I'd have to There's going to be a famine. MC. Um, I haven't looked at them in ages, so. I imagine that there's something meaningful in there. Um, I just don't know what it is right now. Like, a, a good example that I didn't use of one of these that we can see pretty clear is in, uh, like, First Samuel. We have... Um, they're going back and forth, uh, the interchange, um, between the, basically Samuel and the terrible priesthood that he would uh, eventually replace. Um, and when we follow that story, it might seem, um, disjointed after a while because it's like, man, we're looking at this, this chick's two sons that are terrible and then we keep jumping back to Hannah and Samuel and we're like, when are we going to get to well, what we're getting to? But the constant change and the the time of it uh, draws further comparison and, and contrast, contrasting between um, the new priesthood to come and the, the terrible priesthood that existed at the time. Um, the wicked one, if you will. So, um, let's see here. That's probably all I got. Any final thoughts? 801. <laughs> I'm actually stunned that everything went so timely. All right, if we have nothing, then I'll close in prayer and we can get going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and uh, these folks here just coming to uh, do the hard work of, of holy thought, trying to sharpen our skills to better hear your voice. Um, that's what we hope to do through developing these skills, meditating on your word, just to hear you speaking right to us. Um, continue to bless us in that, uh, empower us by your spirit, and may all the praise of, of our efforts be to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen.